You're listening to the Art of Parenting podcast. I'm your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. My intention is to share with you simple tips and tricks that will make a huge difference in your life, as well as giving you all the support and encouragement you deserve to enhance your parenting experience. I've created this safe place for us to explore the issues and concerns that matter to you bringing you clarity and solutions with Q&A sessions and inspirational conversations with world-renowned experts in a variety of fields. I've recently created a private community for us to continue these supportive and uplifting conversations. Click the Join the Art of Parenting Community Here button on this page and I will see you there. I'm a firm believer that parenting was never meant to be done alone, and I'm here to debunk the general consensus that it has to be hard. A warm welcome to you, and thanks for tuning in. Hey there, Jeanne-Marie Penel. I've got something exciting that I wanted to share with you before we get into this fabulous interview that I'm about to share with you today. So today is the first day of my free masterclass called Discover the Foolproof Secrets to Raising Kind, Curious, and Cooperative Children. This is, as you know, dear to me, and I have put together a masterclass that I'm inviting you to to attend today, and I will have two more sessions next week. But it's really if you are looking to just have a bit more confidence and to try to understand what, you know, what your child truly needs and what you need and how to put all the pieces together. You've done so much research. You know you want to be a conscious, calm, patient parent, but sometimes you just need to find all the pieces to the puzzle. So that's what I am planning to doing in this free masterclass, and I invite you to join me. The link can be found in the show notes, and it is also on my website, voilamontessori.com forward slash foolproof dash invitation. There you will enter your name and email and will receive an option to choose the time and date you want and join me live. So I'm looking forward to this. Now, without further ado, here is my interview for you today. Take good care. Hello and welcome back. This is Jeanne-Marie Penel, your host of The Art of Parenting. And today I have the pleasure of having Ria Lala uh, speak to us. And Ria, thank you so much for being here. And I just cannot wait to get into the thick of this conversation because I know that there is so much that you have to share with us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be with you and your listeners. Wonderful. So as always, I like to start with what is your definition of the art of parenting? Mm. So I feel that the art of parenting is the willingness to identify our patterns and bring an awareness to the things that we do and say. Uh, so it's essentially like we, we're like archaeologists, okay? And an archaeologist, what do they do? They dig to the bones of something, right? So how much are we willing to dig to the bones of our beliefs, our biases, our blind spots, our behavior, to ask ourselves, why did I just say this? Why did I just do this? Where did this come from? Who does this remind me of? What are my earliest memories of this? How was my mother? How was my father? This willingness to identify our patterns 
I believe that parenting has many different arts because there's so many different balls we juggle. But for me, that's how I would define it is a willingness to identify your patterns. Because when we can identify a pattern, you see, if the pattern's not identified, it just runs rogue. So we just are like an automaton running these patterns of behavior that alienate or we have this reactive, resistant behavior uh, all things in our unconscious possibly and something that everybody else is seeing and reacting to in the home, like our children or our spouses. So a lot of this is in our unconscious, these, these patterns. And, but if we're willing to roll up our sleeves and dig, we can find magic. Wonderful. Wonderful. And that, uh, I mean, that's, that's a heavy definition for sure. Like it it feels like, oh my gosh, there's a lot of work to be done, but yet it feels so powerful to be able to identify that. Right. And, and you have this beautiful um, tagline on your website of your child's development hangs in the balance of your own transformation. And to me, that is just so powerful because it's true, you know, our, our parenting journey is a self-development journey in, in, in full honesty, right? We, we learn so much about ourselves by being with our children. So thank you for that. Because no one will trigger us as much. No one will push the buttons like our partners and our children because we get to take off, we take off all the masks and they get to see all of our neuroses and pathologies and crazies. And then they'll push all of our buttons. So really they're like a trampoline. In fact, nothing else will be a better trampoline for us to jump on and rise to our highest selves if we're willing to do the work, right? Right. So, so, so why is that? Why is it that it is our children and our partners, those that we love, I feel, the most or unconditionally, we let them be our triggers? Well, uh, I think it goes back to, as I said before, like your neighbor, you know, if the neighbor... If you're having a bad day, you know that you have to put on a certain level of graciousness and, and you know, healthy communication when the neighbor's talking about the lawn or the day or maybe nothing that you're even interested in. There's a certain pleasantry that you have to do, right? And we do that all the time. We do that with our coworkers. We do it with the lady behind the counter at the grocery store. We do it with our neighbors and the person walking down the street. Most of the time when someone were to ask you, how was your day? How are you feeling? It's fine. Everything's okay. But meanwhile, you have an entire heartbreak that you're holding in your heart, right? And you're not about to go and unload that onto other people. Uh, with our partners and our children, well, first of all, uh, with our partners, our partners become our attachment figures. So essentially, the people that we choose to be our partners tend to have a smell of the wound that we we established with the parent with, that we had to work the hardest to earn love from. Let me let me just say that another way. For everyone listening, you'd have had, you know, maybe you had two parents in the household. And one of them, love came a bit easier. And one of them, you had to work a little bit harder to get that love from. Okay. So you can, everyone can be thinking about, is that with my mother or my father? For me, it was my mother. Okay. That doesn't mean that there was something uh, like terrible that happened or something extreme, but there was an, a wound. And basically, you know, I'll just, just quickly explain wound. A wound is anywhere in your life where you had a need and it didn't get met or something that you wanted that didn't happen for you. Okay. So that's a wound. So this is, um, 
And these wounds happen. Like, I mean, wounds happen all the time. You could be the most conscious parents and there's wounds. The thing is, is that if it happens repeatedly again and again, like maybe you want mom and dad to listen to you or hug you or hold you or, or not have you feel frightened or help you explain the emotions you're going through. Uh, if it happens again and again and again, then it becomes something that literally almost changes the architecture of our brain and affects our responses, right? Uh, so when I so now once we think about the parent that we have the attachment wound, so meaning that we had places where one of our parents, one more than the other usually, where we had to work really hard to earn their love, what we tend to find is that we end up choosing partners who are not like a one-to-one correlation of who our mother or father was with the attachment wound, but someone who has the smell of the wound. Meaning, what we seek as humans is the familiar. We we think we have all this free choice, and I'm you know I'm choosing this because this is the best looking, most interesting, fabulous human that I could find, and that is all true. But what's also true is that in ways that we are unconscious of we are smelling out something similar to the wound that we had, meaning we follow patterns. And that pattern that starts to become illuminated, which is why, you know, a husband and wife can love each other very dearly, but then they tend to have these tete-a-tetes where something about what the husband or wife or partner might be doing is something vaguely familiar to what they had to endure when they were children. So now we all of a sudden find ourselves in partnership And we resort back to our little five-year-old, six-year-old girl self or five or six-year-old boy self going, will you, will you love me the way that my mother never? Will you love me the way my father never? And so I can finally feel healed and feel lovable. Will you? And that is at the heart of the root of the pain that's happening between the couples. And that is quite triggering because we feel entitled. I didn't get this my whole life. And now I'm not getting it from you in this kind of little way because you didn't pick, you got a glass of wine for yourself, but you didn't get one for me. And all the meaning that we draw from behind that little action. Do you see what I'm saying? Totally, totally. So that piece of it is why our partners will, uh, you know, why we tend to like butt heads and because of the attachment wound. And for our children, well, our children for... I mean, nothing is more egoic than our children. It's probably the most egoic role that we'll play is the role of parent, right? Because we love when our children have all of our, let's amazing parts, right? We love all the shiny bits to us. Oh, yes, I'm I'm a finisher, completer. Yeah, take that. Oh, I'm very brave. Yeah, take that. But if they have, um, but if they're a procrastinator or they're uh, unfocused or whatever the parts of us that we don't, necessarily love about ourselves and we see in our children, that triggers us, right? So that's what I mean by it's a very egoic place for um, parenting. And then we also have these young children who are, especially if they're young, for any of your listeners who have children that are probably 10 and unders, they're in a very wanty-wanty stage, right? They're in like kids that are between five and six are in this very narcissistic stage, very normal and natural. They, they are living in the world of me. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that that's what it is. So now you have someone who may not have done all the inner work because what else would have forced us to pull our socks up and do that work, right? And now we find ourselves with children who want things and need things from us and we're tired, but we still have to, you know, maybe fix a meal or organize a dentist appointment. And so we are, and we've also broken the, um, in, in our culture, 
in the West at least, broken this this uh, ability to to depend on anyone in the familial or you know in, in the group, right? So now we're alone. So take all of those things and probably throw in a few others. Uh, you now have parents that have short tempers and they don't have to put on the mask. So they can just kind of be all of their, you know, neurotic, pathological, crazy self, me included. Like I, uh, but the the only, the thing is, it's not that I don't have them. It's just that I'm willing to roll up my sleeves and fetishize them and to explore in exploring why the heck did I just say that? Right. And then if I did say something or do something that's, you know, uh, what I'd call suboptimal, then I go back and I heal it. Right, right. And I love that explanation. Because for me, I guess I was, you know, stuck in the kind of the the not the triggers, but the way that we act vis-a-vis our children is often rooted in how we were treated as as children, right? I, I always say like the the only manual that we have to parenting is is our own childhood. Yes. And and often, you know, we want to maybe do it differently, or we remember as a child saying, "I'll never do that," and then and then and then here we are doing it, and we're going, "Oh my God, I'm sounding just like my mother," or, <laughs> you know, and and so it's interesting how you say it's more about this this wound that is also needing to be healed, and that that's what really triggers uh, triggers us. It's fascinating. Well, that is, that is what a trigger is. It's your perception of something that happened to you, like right in the past, and then it's it's not it hasn't felt healed. And so, when you see this action that they're doing, you're getting triggered. What you're really doing is going in like this little mini time machine and resorting back to the past. But you are right, though. We we do say things like, "I'm never going to do that." Like, for example, let's suppose parents spanked children, and we go, "I'm never going to spank my kids." And guess what? You don't. Right. But so there might be areas where we go. We actually live into that. We will always do. I would say um, we're always like standing on higher vistas, almost like on the shoulders of our parents and learning because we have so much access to information nowadays to to build our consciousness and awareness. But as you say, the interesting thing is it's so insidious and subtle how these patterns of behavior play out. Sometimes in the words, sometimes in the actions, sometimes in we we don't even know, but then we find ourselves repeating the pattern, something very similar to our own childhood. Yes, you're right. Right, right. And it's interesting when you were talking about the the partner. Like I was trying to, you know, think in my mind. I'm I'm have the same partner for 27 years. We've had two children and such. And and for me. We had a wonderful relationship, really not much, you know, fighting or anything until the children arrived. And that was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) where we wouldn't, we just didn't see eye to eye on how to handle different situations. And I know for me, that was really hard. And I quickly, I think, you know, with my first child realized like, that is not my place to be like, this is his relationship that he is creating with his child. And I have my own to mm-hmm. create. So I'd love if if you can talk a little bit about that. Like for me, it's that whole, you know, parenting as partners, like parenting as a team. And I know that that's kind of an ideal that we have, 
but it's not always a reality where it's it's really hard to to parent with somebody else who has just such different views on how you want to parent. Well, I would agree with you on that. In fact, uh, that is an extreme pain point uh, and, and a sometimes heartbreaking, very frustrating place to be in. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's different ways that we can we can look at it. Uh, I'm going to give you two kind of very different ways. So one is the recognition that, and something that sounds very cliched, but, you know, all you can control is yourself. And uh, when a parent, like a partner, is not showing up in the conscious way that you might want them to, mm-hmm. recognition, and you want both, we want both because maybe you want your kids to have that experience of feeling whatever it is you want them to feel from that other partner, or maybe you want to feel alignment or justification. But what's to me most importantly is that the child, at least from one parent, is feeling somebody who's bringing a level of consciousness and understanding. So that even if you have one parent that, you know, sometimes what I've noticed through my coaching is that you have one parent that tends to show up more consciously with more awareness, like eager to maybe read the books and understand what can we do to optimize the situation. And one parent that's kind of like, well, I turned out okay. And, you know, you know, what's, I've got check marks in the box. You know, I got a job. (laughs) I I mean, someone married me. So, or something like that. Right. Uh, right, right. But they're they're not necessarily seeing what their patterns are that are suboptimal that are affecting the relationship dynamic between the children and then in turn the spouse. So uh, in that situation, one thing that comforts me is that you have as long as the children have one person that they can go to when they have all of their heartbreak and paper cuts in their heart that can help them untangle that and make sense of that, even if it's their father or their mother, yeah, and someone can help them through that, then that's a powerful place to be. So that's one. So that's why if you have, right, for anyone that's listening, if one parent is showing up consciously, the other one's not, as long as you're doing your best to help them understand themselves and understand their feelings, very powerful. Um, The other piece is from more of a spiritual side is everyone's kind of like their dharma. It's like their life's passage, right? And right. the relationship that I have with my children, for example, where they tell me all my secrets and they sit on my lap and they tell me all their heartbreaks. Like I remember one point, like they've got a very, my husband, we've been together 20 years, very loving father. But uh, because I spend so much time investigating, curious about my children's who are teenagers now, um, feelings, I remember when they were kids, they were probably about, oh gosh, maybe six and seven. They had, we were in the tropics and they touched a plant and it let out this milky substance that caused their hands to itch, right? What made me laugh mm-hmm. is they, they panicked and they bypassed their father who was 10 feet away from them and found me in God knows where all the way across like the way to tell me that they had been, you know, something happened to them. And when we went to dissect that with my husband, I I wanted him to understand why do you think that happened, right? That they bypassed you for them to, for him to explore that if you want to have a relationship where your kids tell you all their heartbreaks, their triumph and their tragedy, then that's what, you know, me putting in the work to try and understand myself and therefore understand another. And I can only understand another insofar as I understand myself. If I've marginalized jealousy and I, I relegated it out to the outlying horrible emotions, how can I ever hold space for my child's jealousy, right? So I have to be able to understand, the more I understand about myself, 
the more I can understand another human. So in if we look at it as a spiritual path that we're taking, they're on the path and this is the path that they're on. Now, because I'm a little bit more like a bull at the gate, I do tend to do enrollment exercises. So one of the things, like my husband and I, like as most people, we have very different ways that we were brought up. Uh, and my enrollment exercise isn't about let me lecture and shame, blame, or make wrong you. My way of enrolling is to find the most, what I call my yummy time. The most yummiest time that we have, let's call it a Sunday morning, and while we're lying there in bed and just talking about all and sundry, I might ask a question about his past and something that happened in his past. And then I might ask him, what was something that you would have wished your dad would have done in that moment instead of doing that? And in that explorative space, yeah, I've, uh, he doesn't realize this, but I've already footnoted something that happened on Tuesday and on Thursday or a pattern. But I don't want to just go, hey, let's just raise the curtains and this is the issue. What I want to do is I want him to somatically and viscerally experience something for himself that I've guided him to. And in that space of his own, he doesn't even know where I'm going, of exploration and trying to understand himself and feeling sometimes the pain of wanting his dad to play with him, but he wasn't around because he was working pretty much in a, in a 24-7 business. And as he's mourning that and with it, and I'm holding space for that, in that place, I can go, oh, okay, so that's kind of like what was happening on Thursday with our son or with our daughter. And that in that moment, a visceral understanding, like experiential understanding, the penny drops, you see? Right. So it's less about, it's less about I'm telling you what to do or why don't you ever or shame, blame, or make wrong. Now, is it a perfect science? No. And do I get it wrong often? Yes. <laughs> but, but in my highest self and at my most clear moments, I'm able to hold that space because I'm interested in him healing as we all are with our partners. Um, but it's it, that savvy to, to help with the enrollment. And and then again, he's never going to be me. I also have to recognize that we have different superpowers, right? Right, right. And the kids get to benefit. I mean, there are probably places where I'm overly um, curious about an, a situation or an emotion. And his his willingness to just kind of be forward thinking ca- could be quite useful in that moment, right? Right, right. So, mm-hmm. No, I was going to say what you what you just shared about, you know, uh, kind of enrolling and, and figuring, helping your husband or helping yourself figure out where, where those triggers came from sounds very much like a trained, you know, trained psychologist who, who has that language. And I'm just, I have the voice of my listeners of like, but how do I do that? Right. Because for me, like I would feel probably at a loss or not at a loss, but but immediately detected, like, what are you trying to get at? <laughs> or, or, you know, that it wouldn't be so, so well done or so savvy. So do you have like, go to, I don't know, tactics or phrases to, to help our partners see a little bit deeper and, and maybe become a little bit more conscious of why they're doing the things they're doing? Okay. So one of my best tips is for and I'm not saying this in a patronizing way at all, 
is to look at our partners as if they were children. Okay. And through the experience that you have of them, and maybe you've met their parents and maybe they've told you bits and pieces about their parents and maybe they feel defensive about their parents, but there's something in your intuition that you've picked up on as well. But there is places where you feel your partner, um, Oh my gosh, I lost my train of thought here. We were talking about um, just how to help, how to help kind of not heal the wounds, but but just see a little bit of where, where triggers are coming from with our partners. If we're not professionals like you are, where you have, like, I, th- I feel like you, you have the language and you have the know-how and the experience to be able to, to kind of draw that out. So- so it's first just to be curious about where are the places in you. So if when you see your partner as a child, what is the thing that they would have wanted from their mother and their father that would have been really healing to them? So can I, can I illuminate this in more of a... Please, please. Yes. Yes. Okay. So uh, my husband and I, we, we were going up to the cottage and our kids were in the car and there was a situation where I offered my son the front seat, the coveted front seat. Okay. So my husband's driving, my son's in the front seat. I'm behind my husband and my daughter sitting next to me. And we had already, my husband and I, before we left for the cottage, held hands on the bed. And we said, Hey, what are we wanting to create for this week up at the cottage? And so we had all these ideas, what we wanted for ourselves and what we wanted for the family. So on the banks of that, we're on the drive and half an hour in the drive, I notice an argument happen. It just, I mean, it wasn't an argument that lasted long. It was literally about three seconds, but I heard my husband's harsh tone to my son. And then I saw, saw my son look at me and look at his father with kind of like big saucer eyes and then kind of look out the window. And so my whole energy went on to high alert because I'm thinking, what just happened there? Because I'm kind of in my own world in the backseat reading. What had happened was, is my son had put it on a particular radio station. Not a big deal. A radio station that all three of us like in the car. But my husband was apparently had changed the radio station to something else. And my husband, and sorry, and my son changed it back. Now, I'm oblivious to all of this. And then what my husband had said to my son was, uh, you know, there's other people in the car too. And, but the tone that he said it in, which my son is like super sensitive to tone as I am as well, I guess you could see that he felt his father was angry at him. And then he kind of looked out the window. Okay. So now as I'm sitting in the back seat, I'm thinking, wait, what about our pack? Didn't we have a pack that we're going to have happy, happy, joy, joy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and now everything's spoiled and we have a three hour drive and we are only half an hour in. So I'm secretly poking my husband and kind of pulling at his seat, trying to get his eye contact in the rearview mirror, thinking, heal it. You're the grown-up, heal it. Like, that's what my whole energy is saying. But he is refusing to look at me in the rearview. And by the way, he's a wonderful, he's a wonderful man. But I, it's just a, a really great story to illuminate something that I think is very important. He's He will not look at me in the rearview mirror, and he's not taking on any of my, my, my shoulder taps. Okay. So we end up getting into, unfortunately, a tete-a-tete in the car. And I'm very frustrated because now we've gone almost three hours and like nobody is happy. Like nobody's happy in the car. And we've never, honestly, I don't think I've ever in my entire 15 years of having children, never been in a situation like that. That had never happened where we just couldn't recover. 
and the kids are kind of feeling the tension, even though no one's arguing so much. So long story short, when we arrive at the cottage, I said to the kids who probably were so glad to get out, guys, go take a walk by the lake. Your father and I are going to stay in here. And as what we always say is we're going to work it out and figure it out. Don't worry. So as I sat there feeling my own inner anger at thinking, why did you choose to be like wrong and strong? Like, why couldn't you overcome this? Why couldn't you fix it and just make everything heal and be okay? And instead I breathed through my own shoulda, woulda, coulda. Mm -hmm. And as I regulated my own nervous system and I looked after myself, I didn't look for him to come save me. It was just me looking after myself. And in that calm state, then I could ask myself, what is it that would have been most healing to him knowing how he grew up and how things were like a child? And I remembered something that he had told me. And he, when he was a kid, his parents would always only play the music that they wanted to play. And one time there was a song that he really loved on a tape deck. And he said, oh, mom, I, dad, I love this song. And every time he asked to have it played again, they never played it again. Aww. So what, where I'm, and he has wonderful parents too, but where, where I'm going with this is this is exactly what happens in relationships. It's a five-year-old, eight-year-old boy saying, mommy, daddy, can you play this song? And then they never play it. And that feeling of sadness that turns into anger, that turns into entitlement. So when, what he, when he reacted to that, the, the channel changing, which would normally would not bother him at all, in that moment, because he said to me, I'm angry at you. And I was like, angry at me? Why are you angry at me? Oh, I was sitting in the back seat. He goes, you should have defended me right? so that I got the song. And then I realized what was happening here. What was happening is he resorted to a, an ancient uh, experience in his life. And instead of trying to prove what he could have done or should have done, here's what I said. I thought to myself, what would be the most healing, nurturing thing for me to love on him? Like to the highest version of love. And this is what I said to him. You know what? You deserved to be able to choose songs in the car. And you even deserve to be able to hear the songs that you wanted to hear when you were a kid. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. And I'm really upset that, you know, unfortunately, I couldn't come to that. I didn't realize what was going on. And then I grabbed his hand. And then his eyes got all teary. Because what had never happened in the whole history of his life is that anyone acknowledged and honored the fact that there was a pain and a heartbreak that he had to endure. But of course, he's a grown man. And he, you know, is high performing and successful but doesn't even realize that there's a wound that never got healed. Mm, you see? Yeah. So yeah. to me in that moment, I go, that's what it is to love someone. So for the listeners to get, answer your question, it's not necessarily that you have, have to have all the language. I mean, by the way, this is, this is something that can be taught, but at the, at the very basic piece of it is a willingness to understand your, your partner's past and understand what is it that they didn't get. And then imagine what could they have gotten from their parents? Was it acknowledgement? Was it touch? Was it validation? Was it that you're a good boy? Like, what is it? And then when the problems happen and the tete-a-tete happens, that we, we pull from our baby toe to regulate ourselves and love them in a way that they didn't get from their partner. That's it. It's beautiful. And so then they, yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. So that's a long story. That's a long story, but it's, it's, it really does like highlight how this comes full circle in our lives. 
from childhood all the way to marriage. Yeah, no, and it, and it's 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 a beautiful story because it 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 does you know is a perfect example of how simple it can be to heal. I mean, it, it's, I think it's hard work in that you, you've gotten, you know, 20 years to know your husband and, and to kind of pull all of this information from him and, and you, you're able, you have it all categorized and you, you understand it. But what, what fascinates me or, or where I'd love for us to go is how to kind of be careful that we don't reproduce these wounds in our children. I mean, and I know, you know, I know that there's always going to be something, right? Like I know I entered my parenting knowing that I would do the very best I could, but that I would be told one day that I did it all wrong or that, you know, I didn't do this right or whatever. So <laughs> I know that that's, you know, that there is no such thing as a perfect parent and all that. But for me, I know, you know, I work a lot with uh, families from from birth through age six, because for me that is really the the core and the foundation of everything, right? And so, how can we as parents, as as the caregivers of these, you know, adults in the making that we have in front of us, how can we be very conscientious of of not wounding them, of not you know putting these these childhood wounds that they're going to have to heal later on. Well, Shakespeare said, know thyself. And I think he might have got that from Socrates. But the willingness to be curious, to understand. So if I want to, to stave off as many of the patterns that might be inherited or, you know, places of my own unconsciousness that might get replicated, unless I'm willing to start really being curious and ask myself questions, why did I just say this? Why did I feel this? Where did this come from? Where does this remind me of? all those types of questions to meditate on those questions themselves, be calm enough to even be able to ask myself those questions and, and be, and, and notice like just little patterns that I find myself in. Like I, why do I always find myself in the same, I, I'm feeling resent. Like here's a perfect one. If parents out there are feeling resentful, that's a really good indicator that you don't have good boundaries. Okay. Mm. So if you feel a lot of resent in your life, chances are you don't have good boundaries. So this is where, um, now we go, okay, so resent is not good boundaries. So, uh, I now it's less about how do I have my children become, not have any of my crazies and more about how do I transform myself? And here's why children listen to who you are in the energy space more than what you say. So they're watching what you do, but they actually have ESP meaning they don't have to hear the inner workings of your mind. They don't have to have like a, um, hear you speaking to yourself inside of your closet about all of the things that you're, you know, want to triumph and, and better in yourself or the, the, you just have to feel it right. and experience it. So if you're feeling places of insecurity or if you're feeling places where you don't feel, um, like you look after yourself well, or you have good boundaries, or you're self-expressed, or you're confident. Uh, those things you cannot hide from your children. You can't. You could even do the whole vaudeville like that, 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 that as, as if you're confident and, and running that show, but you still can't fake out your kids, meaning they can smell it out by osmosis in the air that they're breathing inside the house, which means the only way to do it 
is to now roll up your sleeves and do the work. And when I say it's work, yeah, I, I can't say this in any other way. To be a parent and to live your life um, in a way that is as aware as possible, it's going to hurt your head. It's like reading Shakespeare. It's going to hurt your head. But I love Shakespeare. I, I love Shakespeare and I'm willing to do the work because I love it. But my point is, is this idea that any of this is going to come easy. It's not. It's going to hurt and it's going to make you feel uncomfortable and you're going to feel angry and you're going to think this is exhausting and I'm done with this shit. Like all of it. Right. And then you're going to go back when you gather your, <laughs> gather yourself and you're going to uh, keep going down that rabbit hole. And the way I get a bit of solace from it is any of my patterns that I want my kids not to take on, it's less about telling them and more about how do I figure this out in my life for myself? So this pat, this is what the energy is. I am going to figure this out for, and I have connected to my big why as to why I want to figure it out, right? Because this is going to die with me. Meaning my child is walking up a hill and as they're walking up the mountain, they get to see from different vistas and they'll go further and farther than me. And I don't want to put any additional rocks in their backpack, right? So here's the thing. I will by accident, unconsciously put rocks in their backpack. And that means a backpack is heavy as they're climbing up the mountain. And what I want to keep clearing, meaning I can come to them and I can take ownership and I can ask questions and I can be curious about places where they feel hurt or feel misunderstood or f where they didn't feel that they got the love that they really wanted for me or the, uh, the understanding. I mean, that's a question I've asked my children ever since they were four. Not only how do, do you feel loved, but where didn't you feel loved? Mm. Where did I miss the boat? And then I clean it up. And I never say things like I'll never do it again because the truth is, I can't promise that. Right. But what I can say is, you know what? I, you, I, you're right. And uh, I can do better because that I can say with pure authenticity. I can do better. And that, and that is such a beautiful role model for our children is that we always strive to do better, right? Exactly. That there is no, no perfection. There's no rival. There's no, like you're, you're, you're never in yoga pose on Mount Olympus, but um, but then, but then here's the thing. They also get to see somebody that's a full spectrum of a human being, because the truth is, is that in those moments where I've missed the mark and there's been a disconnect, quite honestly, the level of intimacy and understanding and exploration that we get to do that would never have happened if everything was happy, happy, joy, joy. So the truth is, is we learn much more from our heartbreak and from our disconnection if we're willing to go back and keep uncovering. But often what we do is we just go, uh, let's not rip the Band-Aid off. So what we do is a superficial, I'm sorry. You know, one of the things I'll say is just a side note is I've taught my kids, I never tell them to say sorry. Uh, to me, sorry is a cultural word that has been used as a shortcut. What people care, like I can guarantee that someone could take the words I'm sorry completely out of their language and speak to the impact and the feeling and the repercussions and of, of what just happened. And they will feel so felt, so understood, so seen, so loved. And the word sorry never left their mouth. So to me, I'm more interested in my kids understanding the impact of their words and actions on their brother or sister or whoever else more than a flippant, I'm sorry. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and I love that because I know I'm, I'm often telling parents like never to tell children to say they're sorry, right? Because first of all, developmentally, they're not, the young children are, don't, aren't sorry. They're, they're not, they just did what they did and, and they're not at all sorry. And so, so to force them to do that is to go against their, you know, their, their innate nature or their, what they're really feeling. And then, and then you see children go, sorry, sorry, sorry. Like they don't, they don't feel it. They don't even know what it means. So I, I love that you said that. Wonderful. Well, this, this has been wonderful, but I realized that we got right in the thick of it and I never really um, got to have a proper interjection for, for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you came to do the work that you're doing. Um, especially with uh, Build Great Minds. Yes. Okay. So I've always, so I'm an uh, emotional intelligence specialist. I'm also a parenting and relationship coach. Uh, how I got to do the work I'll, I'll, is a quite interesting story because I think that I was being primed for this unknowingly since I was five, because I want to share something really quickly about something my father did with all of all four of us when we were young, when we were young and we'd go to a playground or we'd go to a coffee shop or I don't know, wherever it might be, our father would always ask us, why do you think that child is crying? Why do you think those parents look angry? Why do you think that person has his back towards that other person? So as a young child, five and up, you just, well, you don't know. So you're going to use your imagination, use all of your um, almost like attunement to try and come up with a story. Now, in that moment, you're reading body language, you're reading maybe facial expressions, you're le listening to tone, and then coming up with an idea. So what happens is when you do that a lot as a child, you build um, what I, it's perspective taking. So you're trying to use your imagination. Perspective taking is an imagination game. You're imagining someone else's world based on a series of data that's coming out at you. So based on that, that's all we did is we spent so much time talking about feelings and emotions and trying to understand and getting used to reading people. That I think is what led me to eventually doing this for companies. So for the, I, I still do it for corporate, but essentially teaching them emotional intelligence and helping, um, I don't know, senior management executives uh, optimize their relationships with their staff and their clients. Then right before I had my children, I read a very powerful book and it was called The Continuum Concept. I don't know if you've read it, but it's by the name, uh, Jean Lederoff, I believe. And she was a woman who went to live with indigenous societies all around the world and watch specifically how they raise their children. And for me, uh, this was just before I had my son. It was a complete paradigm shift. Like I had never read the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. I'd sort of intuitively felt that that something didn't resonate with me. But listening to things that we in the West just accept as a truth, I'm going to give you one very quick one. For example, you know, a young baby that's born, when they're born in the West, one thing that everyone knows to do when they hold the baby is to hold the neck up, right? Mm -hmm. Because who knows what would happen? Maybe it breaks off, falls off. We don't know <laughs> because we always hold the neck. However, in uh, Uganda, for example, within three days, women have, the babies have full muscular control of their neck. Now, is this something that's unique to Ugandan women? No, because it's been replicated with other indigenous societies, which means that how is a baby in Uganda and various other places holding their neck up in three days 
And women in the West have to do it for an entire month until the baby's neck is strong enough. And there are reasons for that. One is that generally they go right back to work. The baby is skin to skin. So this is the attachment parenting. And the baby gets every, the mother's responsive to every eek, every cry, highly attuned. And also is being jostled as the mother goes back to work, carries things on her head, carries things on her back. So the child is being jostled and skin to skin, and therefore their neck gets a lot of the muscle musculature built. Now, that is something that we have never really in the West, uh, you know, even thought about because no one's questioning that. So after I read that book, I essentially said, wow, if that's true, then what else don't I know? And that sort of took me down into starting Build Great Minds. And for Build Great Minds, I basically offer courses and coaching for people that just want to go next level. They want to have a really dreamy relationship with their children. And often that means figuring out what's in the way of that. And since then, you know, I've worked with Children's Aid and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, Mind Valley, of course. So a variety of different uh, um, institutions and affiliations to try and uh, help parents go next level. Right. Right. Beautiful. And I, and I have your father to thank for, for, for his curiosity. It's, it's just funny because I was, I was thinking, uh, reminiscing on a memory and it, it was a little bit different, but with my father, we were separated. And so we would, um, see him on Sundays. And one of the things that we did was to have, uh, you know, sit on a terrace in a cafe in Paris and watch people go by. And he would be more of a kind of descriptive. He wasn't asking us. Yes. So I, I just, I, I find it fascinating that your dad had that, that intelligence to have you wonder and, and, and all of that. So Beautiful. Me, for me, I think it was more an art of people watching that, you know, Parisians like to do. <laughs> yeah. But even that, even that is, is really phenomenal because you just become very attuned to people and their manners. And I, I, I would honestly say that it's the same thing. It's no wonder that you're doing the amazing work that you're doing and putting out into mm, the world. Thank right? you. Yes. Who knows where all of that version from? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you. And and I do have one uh, kind of last personal question, if I may. And you said you had uh, two children, teenagers. How old is the, the eldest? The eldest is a boy. He's 15. And my daughter will be 14 in less than a month. <clears throat> so if you were to go back 16 years when you were expecting your son, your first child, what wise words would you tell yourself uh, knowing all that you know today? Uh, yeah, great question. I would say, number one, learn how to calm your nervous system down. And if we don't know what that means, then figure out basically the shortcut is how you calm yourself down. Now, I'm not talking, we know that we're not calm when we are, I don't know, really angry and stompy and, you know, aggressive, perhaps. But often, even the most passive people can have their nervous system is on high alert and they, they're completely emotionally dysregulated. So it's not necessarily showing up in the traditional ways that you might see in a cartoon. So learn how to calm your nervous system so that you can meet your authentic needs. That means if I had learned 15 years ago what my authentic needs were in order to feel safe and cared about and loved so I'm not looking for my husband or anything outside of me. And in order to do that, I need to be able to stay calm and then meet my needs as if I'm the parent. I'm the parent to the little girl called Rhea. 
I would have done that work earlier. And the next piece is I would have been, even though I've always been curious about patterns and other people, I would have spent more time, like I spend way more time at this stage of my life exploring patterns. So just asking myself, what made me say that? And then meditate a bit on what could be funneling that response or that behavior or that insecurity or that feeling of loneliness or we're just, just being willing to sit with it. Uh, I had my kids, you know, in my early thirties. So I, I feel that had I have done that earlier, I, I wouldn't stave off the different, what would have happened would have been some of the things that I'm learning right now, even in my life, that's constantly unfolding. I just would have gotten a bit earlier. But again, there's no arrival point. I plan to do this from now until I die. Right. But learning how to be calm is a big one and meeting your authentic needs. Yeah. Like meaning, who are, what do I need right now in this moment to feel safe, to feel loved, feel important, and not looking for anyone else to be able to give it to you? Because maybe your mom and dad will come and say to you one day, I tried to love you the best I could. And there are so many places I dropped the ball, but before I die, I want to try and learn how to love you in the way you want to be loved. Maybe they say that, maybe they don't, maybe they're curious, maybe they don't know what they don't know. But the number one person who needs to know how to reparent themselves is us. And sometimes it helps to have a coach to be able to do that. Right. But that to me is very important work. So I I think now things are changing, like even based on what you're saying, you said from you, you deal with parents that are from zero to six. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Because to me that it is just such an important time and, and, and in all the, you know, self-development and, and psychotherapy and all of that, we often go back to that time in our life. Like what happened before seven, you know, and what was the, the childhood? So for me, it's, it's helping parents really access uh, their role, not as uh, not as a teacher, not as a you know short order cook and doing everything for their child, but really, like you say, that reparenting of themselves. Mm-hmm. And and I just love that you 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 focused on yourself as a parent, right? Of what what do I need uh, as opposed to you know saying that you know I would be better at this or that for for my child. It's really about the work that we need to do on ourselves. Yeah. It's, you know, the thing that it's easy sometimes, as strange as it sounds, to go, how do we blame the child? Like the child's not listening. The child's doing this. The child's behaving this way. But but really, if if we're willing to put our ego to the side and be curious, go, how am I helping to contribute to this? Or what is it about me? I mean, that's a conversation for another day. But if I'm willing to do that once I'm calm, I can always find something, like always find something that I'm adding to this mix or helping to create. Like maybe I didn't grow up with boundaries, so I'm not good at maybe holding the boundaries. So that's why I couldn't get the kids to go to bed on time because I'm giving them Swedish massages all day, you know, all night. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and reading story after story. And then, and then I'm mad, but then I have to recognize that I helped contribute to this. Of course. But I want to be angry at the child, but really there's something that I, I can't hold the boundary. 
Right. And why is that? Because honestly, my we I mean, we were allowed to write on the walls. We 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 had almost no boundaries growing up. Mm-hmm. I'm living proof that you can have no boundaries and not be a complete delinquent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, wonderful. Yeah. Oh, Rhea, this has been a wonderful conversation. And I think that we'll have to have some more because there's just so much more that I would like to to discuss with you. But this has been wonderful. Any any parting words that you would like to leave our listeners with? Uh, I guess just on a slightly separate note, perhaps I'd say that, uh, you know, no matter what age your child is, like if you have young children, or if you have older children listening to this, that there is a wealth of information available to you if you're willing to explore with your child how they want to be loved. So my takeaway for everyone or my offering for everyone is whether it's a friend, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your children, whether it's a sibling, ask you know, every, I think everyone on the planet is dying to be understood and to understand, have someone ask them how they want to be loved or what would make them feel loved. Yeah. And so if, if, if everyone tonight just asks that question, you know, I'm really wanting to know how to be a better friend. And I, no, no, you're a great friend. You're a great friend. I know. But you know, one of the best ways for me to grow is there are things that are maybe in my blind spots that I can't see. Maybe I interrupt too much. Maybe I don't call you enough. And then they go, oh, once they feel safe, they go, yeah, well, I'd love if you called me more. Boom. Now you have something in your pocket that you can love another human because it doesn't matter how you love them the way you want to love them. What matters is whether the love lands for them, right? Mm. Beautiful. So being curious about that, I'd say that's a fun, easy one that everyone can take away and do tonight. Beautiful. Thank you so much. This has been a a delight and, and I'm sure my listeners will appreciate this. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Have you been searching for the owner's manual to your child or did you just misplace it? Are you tired of trying to figure out this whole parenting puzzle, not knowing what to do when it comes to tantrums, hitting or biting, sibling rivalry, potty training, proper sleep habits, or just plain wanting a better relationship with your child? You know, I've been at this for a while now and wanted to share my own parenting manual. It's called The Parenting School, and I've created it with you in mind. Give your child and yourself the gift of mindful parenting in just a few short weeks and discover all the tools you'll ever need to parent without losing your patience, giving in, or worrying that you're messing up. If you're yearning to be more patient and present with your child while finding balance in your own life, then you already know that you need effective parenting tools and ongoing support. You know you weren't meant to be raising children alone, and you probably already know that having the right parenting tools during moments of conflict is the key to staying grounded, responding with empathy, and strengthening your parent-child relationship. You've probably sensed that you'd be a more confident parent if you had a like-minded community supporting and encouraging you. Your skills have gotten you this far, but most days you still feel like you're making it up as you go. So here's what I've got for you. Reliable parenting principles that will allow you to finally set boundaries you can confidently uphold, communicate effectively with your child, declutter your home to enhance your child's independence, learning, and family harmony, and find more time to do the things you love. 
This is what the parenting school is all about. During this digital parenting course, you'll get weekly modules with lessons focused on key areas to get you where you want to be. These modules come packed full of video tutorials, journal prompts, actionable activities, expert interviews, and more, as well as weekly Lifeline group mentoring calls where I answer your questions personally, plus a virtual village with like-minded parents supporting each other during this deep dive parenting intensive. I'll also include some extra special bonuses to keep you inspired and motivated along the way. So if this sounds too good to be true and you're ready to up-level your parenting skills as well as your family's well-being, head on over to The Parenting School at voilamontessori.com slash TPS dash enroll. That's TPS for The Parenting School dash enroll. To learn more about the, all the benefits of this fabulous interactive digital course I've created just for you. And by the way, I've also added the link in the show notes for you. Looking forward to supporting you and your family. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Art of Parenting. And if you did, please make sure to share it with your loved ones. And do come share your takeaways in our private Facebook community. I'd also be grateful for a review on iTunes so it can get heard by many more. And remember, if you've got a question, let me know. I'm here for you. Till next time.